0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Eastern Kentucky and Moorhead. Shopper's Guide. Repeated at 5 p.m. and 1 a.m. 1 p.m. Book Series, repeated at 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. 2 o'clock p.m. New York Times, repeated at 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. 3 o'clock p.m. Mystery Mixup repeated at 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. 3.30 p.m. AARP. Repeated at 11.30 p.m. and 7.30 a.m. You are listening to Radio Eye, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio Eye. For further information about this service, please call 859 422 6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader. Today is Tuesday, November 29th. And your reader is Rod Brotherton with Bill Sally back at the Master Controls. As you know, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Now, from our studios, located in the north side branch of the Lexington Public Library, please join me for this live reading of the Herald Leader, which is donated to Radio Eye by the publishers. And... It's going to be a nice day outside. Let's see what the five-day forecast has in total for us. Today, it'll be breezy. High 63, low 41. Tomorrow, though, we'll get a rain and a thunderstorm with a high of only 50 and a low down to 22. Thursday, sunny but cold. High 38, low 29. Friday, milder, high of 53 and a low of 47. And Saturday, we'll get rain and drizzle again with a high of 55 and a low of 31. Looking at the almanac, yesterday's high and low 60 and 45, with a normal of 51 and 33. Last year, it was right on that at high 52, low 27. The record high was 76 back in 1990, and the record low was a mere three in 1930. Precipitation on Sunday was nearly a half inch at .41. Month-to-date, 1.45, We're still half of what's normal at 2.99. Year-to-date, we've had 41.5. Normal is 45.26. And last year, a whopping 52.4 inches had fallen by yesterday's date. And the record for yesterday, in 1973, was a 2.45 gully washer. For the sun and the moon, the sun rose this morning at 7.34. It will set at 520 tonight. The moon will come up at 103 this afternoon and will set at 1138 tonight. And for our weather trivia, what? how long does it take sunlight to reach the earth? Well, at 93 million miles and 186,000 feet per second, tick, 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 divide all that out, eight minutes traveling at The speed of light, which you know, one hundred and eighty-six thousand miles per second. All right, let's look at headlines for today. And the number one story: Buffalo gunman pleads guilty in racist supermarket massacre. The white gunman who massacred ten black shoppers and workers at a Buffalo supermarket pleaded guilty Monday to murder and hate-motivated terrorism charges, guaranteeing. He will spend the rest of his life in prison. Peyton Gendron, only 19, entered the plea Monday in a courthouse roughly two miles from the grocery store where he used a semi-automatic rifle and body armor to carry out a racist assault he hoped would help preserve white power in the U.S. Gendron, who was handcuffed and wore an orange jumpsuit, occasionally licked and clenched his lips as he pleaded guilty to, most, to all of the most serious charges in the grand jury indictment, including murder, murder as a hate crime, and hate-motivated motivated domestic terrorism, which carries an automatic sentence of life without parole. He answered yes and guilty, as Judge Susan Egan referred to each victim by name and asked whether he killed them because of their race. Gendron also pleaded guilty to wounding three people who survived the May attack. Many of the relatives of those victims sat and watched, some dabbing their eyes and sniffing. Speaking to reporters later, several said the plea left them cold. It didn't address the bigger problem, which they said was racism in America. His voice made me feel sick, but it showed me I was right said Zanita Everhart, whose 20-year-old son was shot in the neck but survived. This country has a problem. This country is inherently violent. It is racist, and his voice showed that to me. After the roughly 45-minute proceeding ended, Gendron's lawyer suggested that he now regrets his crimes, but they didn't elaborate or take questions. The critical step, represents a condemnation of the racist ideology that fueled his horrific actions on May 14th, said Gendron's lawyer, Brian Parker. It is our hope that a final resolution of the state charges will help in some small way to keep the focus on the needs of the victims and the community. Gendron has pleaded not guilty to separate federal hate crime charges that could result in a death sentence if he is convicted. U.S. Justice Department has not said whether it will seek a capital punishment. Acknowledgement of guilt and a claim of repentance could potentially help Gendron in a death penalty phase of the trial. Gendron wore body armor and a legally purchased AR-15 style rifle in his attack on the Topps Friendly Market in Buffalo. Those killed ranged in age from 32 to 86 and included an armed bodyguard, security guard that died trying to protect customers, a church deacon, and the mother of a reformer of a former Buffalo fire commissioner. Gendron surrendered when police confronted him as he emerged from the store. Buffalo mayor Byron Brown, who was in the courtroom for Gendron's guilty plea, told reporters afterward that It was important to hear why these precious lives were snatched from us for no other reason than the color of their skin. The mayor, a Democrat, called for a ban on assault weapons, as did Police Commissioner Joseph Gramaglia. Relatives of the victims reiterated their calls for Congress and the FBI to address white supremacy and gun violence. We are literally begging... For those in power to do something about it, said Garnell Whitfield, whose 86-year-old mother, Ruth Whitfield, was killed. White supremacy was Gendron's motive. He said in documents posted online just before the attack that he'd picked the store about a three-hour drive from his home in Conklin, New York, because it was in a predominantly black neighborhood. He said he was motivated by a belief in a massive conspiracy to dilute the power of white people by replacing them in the U.S. with people of color. Swift justice is how Erie County District Attorney John Flynn described Monday's result, noting that it's the first time anyone in the state of New York has been convicted of the hate-motivated terrorism charge. Next... Lexington Mayor Wants Expanded License Plate Cameras. Lexington Mayor Linda Gorton has asked the Urban City Council to expand the Flock License Plate Reader Program by four times the amount it's currently at. The program, which launched last spring, currently has 25 cameras in place across the city at unknown locations. On Monday, Gorton and Lexington Police Chief Lawrence Weathers asked for additional 75 cameras, which will take approximately three months to implement if approved by the council. To meet the challenges of the future, we must continue to modernize the tools our law enforcement officers have, Gorton said. Well, what are the license plate cameras used for in Lexington? the fixed cameras automatically read license plates in areas experiencing high crime, and their images are only used for investigative purposes. The cameras take six or seven images of a vehicle and checks if it is on various lists, including Amber Alerts for kidnapped children, stolen vehicles, or vehicles associated with violent offenses. If the reader finds a vehicle on that list, law enforcement is notified. The cameras are not red light cameras that can be used by law enforcement to track and ticket people for running red lights or for other traffic-related offenses. The funding for the additional cameras was already included in the city's current and council-approved budget, according to Gorton. The additional cameras will bring the total cost of the program to approximately $236,250 annually, Gordon said. The locations of the cameras will now be public instead of private. The decision to keep the location of the cameras private at first was made to see how effective they are, and now that police have over six months of data to analyze. They are comfortable revealing the locations of the cameras. We wanted to make sure that they would work, Weather said. If we gave you the locations, maybe people would try to get around them and things like that. So we did that, and so we intentionally didn't do that. According to the mayor's office, a total of 95 vehicles, valued at approximately $1.4 million, have been recovered with the help of the flock cameras. Additionally, they've helped police locate 11 missing persons and served 130 warrants and subpoenas. One of the warrants served was to a murder suspect from Detroit, according to Gorton. I think the numbers make it clear that we need to move forward and fully implement this program, Gorton said. The locations of the new cameras will be determined by the assistance of Flock Safety public reported crime, and traffic patterns. And next, state to audit 12 counties' election results. A dozen Kentucky counties, including the Commonwealth's most populous, Jefferson County, will have their 2022 general election results audited by the Office of the Attorney General. The audits are required by state law. Following the passage of a bill earlier this year, that increased the number of random audits counties from 6 to 12. These audits are incredibly important, Attorney General Daniel Cameron said at the live stream Monday announcement. I know Secretary of State Michael Adams and others take seriously the importance of making sure that our elections are secure and that folks have confidence in the vote when it's cast and so they are very important to ensuring the confidence of our elections here in Kentucky. In a statement, Adams said these audits contribute to ensuring election integrity, unlike frivolous recount lawsuits. And, in addition to the Attorney General's random audit of counties, in upcoming days we will roll out Kentucky's first risk-limiting audit program, yet another of the numerous reforms introduced during my term, Adams said. Here's what you need to know about the audits. The counties being audited following the 22 general election are Jefferson, Webster, Shelby, Rowan, Oldham, Laurel, LaRue, Owen, Anderson, Christian, Davies, and Breathitt counties. Monroe County was also drawn, but it was audited following the primary and was therefore ineligible to be audited again. State law does not allow the same county to be audited in consecutive elections. Well, why are audits required? Prior to 2022, state law only required 5% of Kentucky's 100 counties, 120 counties, or six, to be audited. In addition to doubling the number of audited counties... Senate Bill 216 also moved up the deadline for the statewide transition to paper ballots to 2024. 2024 required video surveillance of voting machines when not in use during the election periods and codified that voting machines cannot connect to the Internet. The bill passed easily in both chambers of the legislature, but Governor Bashir, a Democrat, vetoed it vetoed it, citing a change to candidate fundraising reports included in the bill. Adams supported the bill, tweeting that it offered nonpartisan, common-sense reforms that will improve our election process as well as public confidence in that process. And Bashir's veto was overridden by the Kentucky legislature, which holds a Republican supermajority in both the House and the Senate. Similar audits of 12 random counties, Nicholas, Monroe, Graves, Metcalf, Jackson, Hopkins, Pendleton, Boyd, Madison, Powell, Rockcastle, and Grayson counties, were conducted after the May 22 primaries. Cameron said irregularities were not found in any of those cases, and no criminal conduct was uncovered. Additionally, The Attorney General's office did not find any criminal conduct following audits of 2020 primary and general election results, according to previous news releases. Cumberland, Davies, Floyd, Monroe, Logan, and Simpson counties were audited after the 2020 primary, and Fleming, Hickman, Lawrence, Livingston, Anderson, and Boone counties were audited after the 2020 general election. The 12 counties to be audited were chosen at random. Cameron, who is also running for governor in 2023, drew the names at a live-streamed press conference from a container holding all 120 county names. From there, the Attorney General's Office Department of Criminal Investigations will reach out to the county clerks in the 12 selected counties to review their information. The results will be presented to grand juries from each audited county, and the grand juries will then report their findings to the Judicial Circuit's chief judge. In general, the process takes a few weeks, though more populous counties like Jefferson or Davies may take longer, said Greg Wolfe, commissioner of the Department of Criminal Investigations. Were there any complaints about Kentucky's 2022 general election? Well, yes, there were, but the details aren't known yet. The Attorney General's office maintains an election hotline for Kentuckians to report any suspected fraud or other election violations. During the general election cycle, the hotline received 379 calls, 93 complaints prior to Election Day, 209 on Election Day, and 77 more after the polls closed. Cameron said his office currently has three open criminal investigations regarding the 2022 general election. Because the cases are still open, Cameron did not provide any further information. Cameron said his office got 330 complaints in the 2020 general election cycle and 295 during the 2022 primaries. Tips are reviewed by a prosecutor and referred for further investigation if necessary, he said. And finally on the front page, student bus driver remain in hospital following bus crash. One student and the driver in a McGoffin County bus crash two weeks ago still remain hospitalized, the local school district said in an update on Friday. On the morning of November 14th, A school bus containing 18 students went over an embankment while traveling west on Route 40 in McGoffin County. 11 students were released from the hospital the same day of the crash, and several more have trickled out of the care in the two weeks since the incident. Thank you to everyone for the support you have shown our families, the McGoffin County School District wrote in an update on Facebook. Please continue to keep everyone in your thoughts and prayers. The students aboard the bus ranged from elementary up through high school. The bus driver was a woman who had worked for the district for a few years, McGoffin County Superintendent Christopher Meadows said after the crash. And the crash remains under investigation by the Kentucky State Police. Next, Crews rescue two from planes stuck in power lines from Gaithersburg, Maryland. Two people were rescued early Monday, more than six hours after their small plane crashed into live power lines, causing widespread outages in Montgomery County, Maryland. Montgomery County Fire Chief Scott Goldstein said the plane got stuck in the lines about 100 feet above the ground at about 5.40 p.m. Sunday. Responders secured it to the tower at 12.16 a.m. Monday, and the first occupant was removed from the plane at 12.25 a.m. The second occupant was out at 12.36 a.m. Maryland State Police identified them as pilot Patrick Merkel, 65, of Washington, D.C., and passenger Janet Williams, 66, of Marrero, Louisiana. Both suffered serious but non-threatening life injuries, and that hypothermia had set in while they waited to be pulled from the plane, Goldstein said. The single-engine Mooney M20JHMAD had reported white had departed White Plains, New York, and crashed into a power line near the Montgomery County Air Park in Gaithersburg, the Federal Aviation Administration said in a statement. The FAA, National Transportation Safety Board, and Maryland State Police are investigating. Utility contractors had to disconnect the high-tension wires to make it safe for rescuers to stabilize the plane. And the next story... Next COVID strain may be more dangerous, the lab study shows. South African laboratory study using COVID-19 samples from an immunosuppressed individual over six months showed that the virus evolved to become more pathogenic, indicating a new variant could cause worse illnesses than the current predominant Omicron strain. The research conducted by the same laboratory that was the first test to first test the Omicron strain against vaccines last year, used samples from a person infected with HIV. The virus initially caused the same level of cell fusion and death as the Omicron BA.1 strain, but as it evolved, those levels rose to become similar to the first version of the coronavirus identified in Wuhan in China. Led by Alex Siegel at the Africa Health Research Institute in Durban, the study indicates that the pathogen could continue to mutate and a new variant may cause more severe illness and death than the relatively mild Omicron strain. The study is yet to be peer-reviewed and is based solely on laboratory work on samples from one individual. Siegel and other scientists have previously postulated that variants such as beta and Omicron, both initially identified in southern Africa, may have evolved in immunosuppressed people such as those infected with HIV. The long time it takes for these individuals to shake off the disease allows it to mutate and become better at evading antibodies, they have said. And in a related story, CDC moves three Kentucky counties to high COVID-19 community level. The latest COVID-19 data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention updated Monday show Kentucky added more than 3,500 new cases over the reporting week, and there's reason to believe we could see even more after Thanksgiving. Dr. Anthony Fauci. The nation's top infectious disease expert said on NBC's Meet the Press Sunday that the U.S. is certainly still in a pandemic. Fauci noted, COVID-19 is still killing between three and four hundred people every day in the U.S. And the vaccination rate, the latest booster shot, has been less than 15%, according to CNBC. In China, That country's COVID-19 restrictions have prompted rare protests, in turn spurring the Chinese government to tighten security. COVID infections in China have reached record highs after citizens have spent long spells confined in their homes, sacrificing income, mobility, and mental health to keep the virus in check. And here's a look at the latest COVID-19 for Kentucky. According to the latest figures from the CDC, updated November 28th, Kentucky saw 3,540 new cases over the previous reporting period. The CDC's case, death, vaccination, level of community transmission, and community-level data update weekly on Thursdays. Barring the Thanksgiving holiday, the last update was November 17th. The number of counties experiencing high COVID-19 community levels, is also increasing, with three additional counties falling into that category, and those are Floyd, Johnson, and McGoffin. The CDC's community level metrics accounts is determined using the following factors. New COVID-19 cases per 100,000 people population is a seven-day total. The new COVID-19 admissions per 100,000 population, a seven-day total. Percent of inpatient beds occupied by COVID-19 patients, again, a seven-day total. According to the CDC, people in communities experiencing high COVID-19 community levels should wear a mask while indoors in public spaces, and there are other health guidelines for milder community levels all COVID-19 community levels, the CDC advises. One, stay up to date on vaccination, including recommended booster doses. Two, maintain ventilation improvements. Three, avoid contact with people who have suspected or confirmed COVID-19. Four, follow recommendations for isolation if you have suspected or confirmed COVID-19. Five, Follow the recommendations for what to do if you are exposed to someone with COVID 19. And six, if you are at high risk of getting very sick, talk with a health care provider about additional prevention actions. The rest of Kentucky's counties are divided between low and medium COVID 19 community levels. That includes 15 counties at medium and 102 at low community levels of COVID-19. While a map blanketed in green counties might give a rosy picture of the pandemic in Kentucky, the latest CDC data also shows high to substantial levels of COVID-19 transmission across the state. Also Monday, the CDC reported 49 new Kentucky COVID-19 deaths occurring over the previous reporting period. Well, where does Fayette County stand with all this? According to the CDC, Fayette County is at a low COVID-19 community level. Monday, the Lexington County Fayette Health Department reported 144 new cases between November 19th and November 23rd. November 24th and 25th were not included due to the Thanksgiving holiday. There were no new virus deaths in Lexington reported during the that time, period. And next, Hawaii's Mauna Loa starts to erupt, sending ash nearby. Hawaii's Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano, started to erupt for the first time in nearly four decades, prompting volcanic ash and debris to fall nearby, authorities said Monday. The eruption began late Sunday night at the summit caldera of the volcano on the Big Island, the U.S. Geological Survey said. Early Monday, it said lava flows were contained within the summit area and weren't threatening nearby communities. However, lava flows in the summit region are visible from Kona. There is currently no indication of any migration of the eruption into a rift zone, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory said in a statement. A rift zone is where the mountain is splitting apart. The rock is cracked and is relatively weak, and it's easier for magma to emerge. How long the volcano erupts and whether it could cause lava to flow to populated areas of the island is impossible to predict, said Neil Corbett, a USGS spokesperson. But I can tell you we're in constant communication right now with Hawaiian civil defense and they're providing updates to community members, she said. Even though it noted there is no indication of lava exiting the summit, the Civil Defense Agency has said it's open shelters in Kalua, Kona, and Pahala because it has reports of people self-evacuating along the south Kona coast. And now it's time to turn to the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location if it is given. And today's obituary index starts with Gary D. Abney, 61, Winchester. Donna Allen Wright, 69, Lexington. Robin Arnold, 53, Paris. Deborah Bean, 66, Richmond. Teresa Little-Bell, 58, Lucille Charles, 81, Wellington. James Robert Eubanks, 79, Flemingsburg. Dirk Brian Goodrich, 67, Winchester. Francis Green, 65, Winchester. Robert Gil Greer, 69, London. Amelia May Hubble, 88, Stanford. Randy Eugene Jones, 43, Winchester. George F. Kiefer, Ph.D., 76, Lexington. Marguerite Kidd, 72, Pine Knot. Keisha Faye Kidwell, 41, Waynesburg. Betty Carol Kirby, 72, Orlando. Lena McHorney, 76, Cynthiana. James McCully, 96, Lancaster. Ollie Mae McGuire, 82, Lexington. Barbara Ann McKinney, 81, Georgetown. Barbara Monson, 75, Lexington. Charles E. Neely, 68, Winchester. Donna Duncan Ping, seventy-five Lawrenceburg. John Ben Price Jr., eighty-one Harrodsburg. Harry Anthony Ransom, fifty-four Winchester. Florence Irene Height Reed, seventy-eight Winchester. Judith Burks Reed, seventy-four Shelbyville. Maxine Rigsby. Ninety-one West Liberty, Michael Douglas Short, forty-six of Holmes Mill, Joe Smart, sixty-seven Paris, Marie Starnes, ninety-two Trotwood, Ohio, Dora Sumner, ninety-six London, Arlie Swafford, eighty-eight Barberville, Carrie Thomas. 25 Falmouth, Lester Turner, 65 of Gray, and Bob Weddle, 65 of Liberty. If you'd like further information about any of the obituaries today, please visit legacy.com slash obituaries Kentucky. And also, you can now call us at our Radio i Studios at 859-422-6390, and we'll try to read them to you. Over the phone. And returning to the news. Man charged in Lexington Police shootout is wanted after failing to show up for a court hearing. A Cincinnati man struck by police gunfire during a shootout in September near the Deja Vu nightclub is now wanted after failing to show up for a police court hearing in Lexington. Darian Reese, 29, was scheduled to appear in court for his preliminary hearing before Fayette District Judge Denotra Spur Gunther. In addition to the arrest warrant, Gunther issued a $5,000 bond. His attorney, Aaron Falahi, stated his client was still in Cincinnati in a hospital, but the Commonwealth Attorney's Office and Gunther were not satisfied with the proof that was given to support Falahi's claim. Falahi previously asked for a continuance to set a new preliminary hearing date and had a letter he said was issued on November 22nd stating Reese would be in the physical therapy for 12 more days. The Commonwealth and Gunther stated the letter appeared to them as being dated on November 11th, which would have released Reese from hospital on November 21st. He should be out by now, Gunther said, Reese has been charged with first-degree assault of a police officer, second-degree assault of a police officer, two counts, of first-degree wanton endangerment of a police officer, two counts of a convicted felon in possession of a handgun, first-degree fleeing or evading police in a motor vehicle, and third-degree criminal mischief. The shooting took place around 11 p.m. September 28th in the 400 block of West New Circle Road. While officers were investigating a robbery, they located a vehicle in a parking spot suspected to be involved in the incidents. When they approached the vehicle, officers said they saw an AK-47 pistol inside the front passenger compartment, according to Reese's arrest citation. Police said Reese moved towards the firearm and officers attempted to stop him by reaching inside the front passenger window. Reese began to drive away from the parking spot with the officer inside and nearly struck an officer, the citation said. An additional officer was reported to have been injured in the knee by the vehicle fleeing the parking lot. According to the citation, Reese drove his vehicle directly toward another officer, which prompted the officer to fire their weapon. The officer inside the vehicle sustained a gunshot wound and was flung from the vehicle. It was not reported who shot the officer. Reese was struck by bullets multiple times and the car came to a stop. Officers tended to Reese before he was transported to the hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. Police said they found an additional pistol in the car between the driver's seat and the center console. According to court documents, Reese was being treated at the U.K. Chandler Hospital and was released on a personal recognizance bond on October 27th and placed on home incarceration and electronic monitoring. According to Lexington Police Detective Ryan Baker, Ryan Raker that is, Reese was planning to go to Cardinal Hill Rehabilitation Center, but they would not accept someone in police custody. His family was taken; was then required to take him to medical treatment in Cincinnati. Next, Biden boosts U.S. effort to stem sexual violence in war zones. President Biden strengthening U.S. policy aimed at stemming sexual violence in war conflict zones, elevating the problem increasingly documented in Ukraine and elsewhere to the level of a possible serious human rights abuse that triggers sanctions and other actions against foreign perpetrators. Biden on Monday signed a presidential memorandum seeks to combat the use of rape by both foreign governments and individuals as a weapon of war. The memorandum directs for the first time that the state and treasury departments and other agencies give equal consideration of acts of sexual violence to other serious human rights abuses in leveraging sanctions and other punishment against foreign actors. Currently, U.S. policy allows for the imposition of sanctions for conflict-related sexual violence, but it is not commonly used. Biden's action comes when the United Nations has warned that sexual violence in Ukraine, especially against women and girls, remains prevalent and underreported. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield has previously cited a mountain, Credible reports of atrocities committed by Russia's forces against civilians, including horrific accounts of sexual violence. The Biden administration on Monday pointed to a proliferation of sexual violence cases in Ukraine, Ethiopia, and elsewhere. It cited a UN report that found 3,293 verified sexual violence cases. In 2021, across 18 countries, an increase of about 800 compared with the previous year. The UN has estimated that for each rape reported in connection with a conflict, about 10 to 20 cases go undocumented. The administration had previously pledged $400,000, in addition to its annual contribution of $1.75 million to the Office of the UN Special Representative, to the Secretary General on sexual violence and conflict. The State Department plans an added investment of five and a half million dollars over the next two years to civil society projects and survivor groups seeking sexual violence accountability and will expand programs to help survivors and investigate and document such acts of violence. Next. Racial discrimination by VA spans decades, A lawsuit says. The U.S. government has discriminated against countless black military veterans dating back decades, rejecting service-connected disability claims disproportionately compared to white applicants, and blocking access to housing and education benefits that helped fuel the rise of America's middle class after World War II, a lawsuit filed Monday Claims. The suit was brought by Yale Law School Veterans Legal Services Clinic on behalf of a Vietnam War veteran, Conley Monk Jr., whose applications for health care, home loans, and education assistance were repeatedly turned away by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the court filing says. His advocates contend that the case could help determine whether the federal government can be held liable for systemic prejudices that over generations have disadvantaged African Americans who served in the military and their families, potentially clearing a path for others to seek recompense. The negligence of VA leadership and their failure to train, supervise, monitor, and instruct agency officials to take steps to identify and correct racial disparities Led to systemic benefits obstruction for black veterans, the complaint says. VA leaders knew or should have known and negligently failed to redress. The suit relies on internal VA data showing that from 2002 to 2020, the agency denied black people seeking disability benefits nearly 30% of the time whereas white applicants experienced a 24% rejection rate. VA also administers home loans, and education assistance for qualifying veterans, and racial disparities also exist in those categories, according to recent studies and legislation pending in Congress. VA Press Secretary Terrence Hayes did not address the lawsuit, said in a statement that the agency is working to combat institutional racism. Officials are reviewing policies to serve veterans who wrongly received punitive discharges, which in most cases led VA to block their access to benefits, and contacting those pushed out of the military to discuss how they can access some programs and care, he said. Throughout history, There have been unacceptable disparities in both VA benefits decisions and military discharge status due to racism, which have been wrongly left black veterans without access to VA care and benefits, He said, We are actively working to right these wrongs. VA disability awards compensate veterans for injuries that resulted from military duty. Payments can range from hundreds to thousands of dollars a month, while affording access to other VA programs and benefits intended to help them and their families thrive after their service obligations end. VA determines an individual's disability rating by evaluating the severity of the service-connected injuries through the medical documentation and other evidence. Other VA benefits are substantial, helping pay for college tuition and setting favorable interest rates for government-backed home loans, most of which are secured with no down payment. The education assistance and home loans contained in the original GI Bill, which became law in 1944, are credited with helping veterans and their families generate wealth after World War II. But a recent study conducted by Brandeis University's Institute for Economic and Racial Equity found it enriched the lives of white Americans far more than black Americans, limiting the possibilities of social advancement. A separate study, overseen by the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center, concluded that black veterans disproportionately receive more punitive discharges from the service, curtailing their access to VA support. Critics of the agency also point to a survey conducted in 2020 by a VA workers' union finding that more than half of the employees who responded said they had witnessed racism directed toward veterans being served by the department. And next, Ukraine on edge for more attacks humanitarian aid is pledged. Ukraine prepared for more Russian strikes against energy and other key infrastructure Monday what appears to be a weekly pattern and warned of possible evacuations from the capital. Estonia's foreign minister joined counterparts from six Baltic and Nordic nations in the largest delegation to visit Ukraine since Russia launched its full-scale war to pledge electric generators, warm clothes, and food. The goal is to help Ukrainians cope with their coldest months of need keep their resolve high. Russia is weaponizing civilian energy security, and it is truly shameful, Estonian Foreign Minister Urmas Rensalou said in Kiev. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky warned late Sunday that Russian troops are preparing new strikes, and as long as they have missiles, they won't stop. He met Monday with senior government officials to discuss what actions to take. The upcoming week can be as hard as the one that passed, he predicted. NATO Secretary General Jans Stullenberg insisted Russian President Vladimir Putin was intent on using frost, snow, and ice to his advantage, not only on the battleground but against Ukrainian civilians. President Putin is now trying to use the winter as a weapon of war against Ukraine. And this is horrific, and we need to be prepared for more attacks, he said on the eve of a two-day meeting of NATO foreign ministers in Bucharest, Romania. That's the reason why NATO allies have stepped up their support to Ukraine. Kiev Mayor Vitali Kleshenko said some people of the city's three million people might have to be evacuated to where essential services would be less prone to shutdowns caused by missile attacks. For weeks, Russia has been pounding energy facilities around Kiev and other Ukrainian cities with missile strikes, usually on Mondays at the work's week beginning, resulting in outages of power and water supplies. Based on the pattern of infrastructure attacks and the Russians' military preparation times, An advisor to Ukraine's interior minister said on national TV that the next strikes could occur as soon as later Monday or in another week. A Ukrainian military spokesman also said on national TV that Russian aircraft had intensified their activity over Ukraine on Monday. With temperatures hovering around freezing and expected to dip as low as 12 degrees Fahrenheit in a little more than a week, International help was increasingly focused on items like generators and transformers to make sure blackouts that affect everything from kitchens to operating rooms are as limited and short as possible. The power situation is so dire that Ukraine's energy trader, in normal times an exporter, tested importing electricity from neighboring Romania. And in domestic politics, McCarthy's pursuit of the Speaker's gavel comes at a high cost. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is in the fight of his political life, grinding through the promises and proposals, cajoling and deal-making necessary to win over reluctant colleagues whose support he needs to become Speaker of the House. Every new commitment from McCarthy can be seen as a potentially strategic move intended to quell skeptics on his right flank as he reaches for the Speaker's gavel. With a slim House majority in the midterm elections, the GOP leader must solidify his ranks in a sprint for the 218 votes he'll need when the new Congress convenes, each coming at a cost and with no room for error. We'll get there, McCarthy said, in accepting his party's nomination to run for Speaker. The overtures McCarthy is making, some symbolic, others substantive, provide a snapshot of the Speaker's hopeful emerging leadership style. While McCarthy is expected to prevail in his quest for the Speaker's gavel, it is destined to to come at a political price, setting the tone and tenor of the new Congress. To start... McCarthy has promised to restore committee assignments for Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, after she and another right-flank lawmaker were booted by Democrats over incendiary remarks. And he has vowed to oust Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California and other high-profile Democrats from their committees, in a form of political payback setting up a divisive House action early in the new Congress. McCarthy has assured that under his leadership, the House will remove the metal detectors that were installed to prevent gun arms in the House chamber, end COVID-area protocols that allow lawmakers to vote by proxy and fully reopen the Capitol's limited visitor access since the January 6, 2021 insurrection by supporters of former President Trump. And, in a nod to the far right, McCarthy has threatened an impeachment investigation against Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas unless he resigns over the department's handling of the U.S. southern border with Mexico. McCarthy's problem is he can't get to 218 without Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and Matt Gates. Schiff said Sunday on CNN's State of the Union referring to the House's GOP's most outspoken far-right members. And so he'll do whatever they ask. The problem McCarthy faces is distinctly Republican, one that almost doomed his most recent predecessors, Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Both suffered politically as they were pushed and prodded by the GOP's increasingly far-right flank to make concessions for their support. Eventually, both men won the Speaker's gavel, but ultimately retired early. After pushing his party to victory in the midterm elections, McCarthy won the nod from a majority of his colleagues nominating him to run for Speaker. But the 188-31 to vote among Republicans showed the shortfall he must overcome. When the new Congress convenes in January, the whole House, Republicans and Democrats, will vote on Speaker, and McCarthy's party will need to stick together with their slim majority for him to prevail. Otherwise, a different Republican could emerge as a compromise candidate. And even though McCarthy defeated Biggs 188-31 in the closed-door voting, with another five Republicans casting ballots for other candidates, That's a pool of some three dozen voters the GOP leader needs to claw back if he hopes to win the Speaker's job. They know they've got a problem, said Representative Ralph Norman, Republican of South Carolina, another Freedom Caucus member. In other words, 36 no votes is a problem. And next... Cyber Monday deals lure online consumers amid high inflation. Days after flocking to stores on Black Friday, consumers turned online for Cyber Monday to score more discounts on gifts and other items that have ballooned in price because of high inflation. Cyber Monday is expected to remain the year's biggest online shopping day and rake in up to $11.6 billion in sales, according to Adobe Analytics, which tracks transactions in over 85 of the top 100 U.S. online stores. That forecast represents a jump from the $10.7 billion consumers spent last year. Adobe's numbers are not adjusted for inflation, but the company says demand is growing even when inflation is factored in. Some analysts have said top-line numbers will be boosted by higher prices, and the amount of items consumers purchase could remain unchanged or even fall compared to prior years. Profit margins are also expected to be tight for retailers offering deeper discounts to attract budget-conscious consumers and clear out their bloated inventories. Shoppers spent a record... $9.12 billion online on Black Friday, up 2.3% from last year, according to Adobe. E-commerce activity continued to be strong over the weekend with $9.55 billion in online sales. Salesforce, which also tracks spending, said their estimates showed online sales in the U.S. hit $15 billion on Friday, and $17.5 billion over the weekend, with an average discount rate of 30% on products. Electronics, active wear, toys, and health and beauty items were among those that provided a big boost, the two groups said. Meanwhile, consumers who feared leaving their homes and embraced e-commerce during the pandemic are heading back to physical stores in greater numbers this year as normalcy returns. The National Retail Federation said its recent survey showed a 3% uptick in the number of Black Friday shoppers planning to go to stores. It expects 63.9 million consumers to shop online during Cyber Monday compared to 77 million last year. MasterCard's Spending Pulse, which tracks spending across all types of payments, including cash and credit card, said that overall sales on Black Friday rose 12% from the year ago. Sales at physical stores rose 12%, while online sales were up 14%. Retail Next, which captures sales and traffic via sensors, reported that stores' traffic rose 7% on Black Friday, while sales at physical stores improved one-tenth of one percent from a year ago. However, spending per customer dropped nearly seven percent, as cautious shoppers did more browsing than buying. Another company that tracks store traffic, Sensormatic Solutions, said store traffic was up 2.9 percent on Black Friday compared to a year ago. Shoppers are being more thoughtful, but they are going to do more than a few retailers to be able to make a determination of what they're going to buy this year, said Brian Field, Sensormatic's global leader of retail consulting and analytics. Overall, online spending has remained resilient in the past few weeks as eager shoppers buy more items on credit and embrace the buy now, pay later services that lack interest charges but carry late fees. In the first three weeks of November, online sales were essentially flat compared with last year, according to Adobe. It said the modest uptick shows consumers have a strong appetite for holiday shopping amid uncertainty about the economy. And finally, China's Xi faces threat from public anger over zero COVID. Barely a month after granting himself new powers as China's potential leader for life— Xi Jinping is facing a wave of public anger of the kind not seen for decades sparked by his zero-COVID strategy that will soon enter its fourth year. Demonstrators poured into the streets over the weekend in cities including Shanghai and Beijing criticizing the policy, confronting police, and even calling for Xi to step down. On Monday, Demonstrators gathered in the semi-autonomous southern city of Hong Kong, where a pro-democracy movement was all but snuffed out by a harsh crackdown following the months-long demonstrations that began in 2019. And this concludes the reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader for today, Tuesday, November 29th. Your reader has been Rod Brotherton with Bill Sally back on the Master of Controls. Thanks for listening, and now please stay tuned for sports news right here on Radio